We're going to have an exciting time over these next 12 weeks looking at a letter that um, isn't one of the most read letters. So you might be discovering some new things during this class. So what we're going to do, we sort of have a neat opportunity with the letter of Jude because it is a smaller letter that we are actually going to read the letter through every week. Every week from beginning to end and hopefully by the end of these 12 weeks we are really going to have this letter inside of us. Um, also what can happen because you know we go slow, this is a line by line, verse by verse class, you'll see we're not going to get very far tonight and that's okay, but we can kind of almost lose ourselves in the details if we're not always going back and reading through the entire letter because that's how letters were meant to be read. We can't forget that. Letters were meant to be read beginning to end in one setting, no matter how long they are. We would never dream of getting letter in, a letter in the mail and going to the middle of it and reading a couple lines and then putting it down and picking it up four weeks later. Letters are to be read in a certain way, and that's what we're going to make sure we're doing in here. So, as we read tonight, I kind of want to start a little differently, and I want you to do what I always do whenever I begin a new letter. As I read this, and some of you are familiar with this because we do this on Sunday night Bible study, but as I'm reading through it, make sure you have your pen with you, and if there's anything that catches your attention, underline it. If there's anything you're like, what is being talked about here? Just circle it. If you have a question, jot it down. Put a star by something. If you make a connection as we're reading, jot it down. That is always a great way to start when you're first beginning a letter. So as I read, um, do that tonight. And I'm going to give you something else to do later. But as I read tonight, you can either follow along on the sheet that I have printed out for you. And I always, in teaching, I always use the ESV. So this is from the ESV. You're welcome to follow along here or from your own Bible. So let's read, and then we'll get started. So this is the letter of Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for the condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. 
and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued a natural desire, serve as an example by undergoing punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand distinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds slept a, swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are the grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud mouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last days there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passion. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, 
majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. So as we read that, anybody underline anything? Anybody see some things where you're like, what in the world is being talked about here? That there's this, this letter contains some interesting things. Uh, by a show of hands, has anyone ever done a line-by-line, verse-by-verse study of Jude? Of Jude. Yeah. Anybody? One? Okay. Okay. A couple of you. A four. You all, proportionally, I think that shows <laughs> um, an issue that we have here that Jude is not a popular letter because it's on a pretty difficult topic. But have we, have we conquered some difficult topics together already? Oh my gosh, we've done some of the minor prophets that are tough. We did Revelation. We can handle Jude. We can handle Jude and I'm very excited to do this letter with you. So, what we're going to do tonight is really um, use the first line of the letter as an introduction. Um, but Jude has been called a short but sweeping book. And that is so true. I think we're going to find this to be very true. Um, the letter of Jude is 25 verses. That's it. 25 verses. It is the third shortest book in the New Testament after 2nd and 3rd John and Philemon. But it is sweeping. It covers a great amount of content, both historically and biblically. We are going to see that Jude is going to take us from the very first prophet mentioned in Genesis, who is Enoch, to the very last days of the last days before Jesus returns in 25 letters, <laughs> 25 verses. Thank you, 25 verses. So he is quite an economist when it comes to words, but we're going to have to do a lot of digging to pull out what he wants us to see here. So as always, we're going to begin where we always begin, which is where this book fits into scripture. Because tonight, we'll be dealing only with verse 1. So let me read it again. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. So tonight, we're going to look at Jude the book. We're going to look at Jude the person. And we're going to look at Jude's audience. So those three things, and we'll use this first verse of his letter um, to get us started here. So if you look in your notes, there we go. Okay. So you know I always like to start this way because I believe it is so important to understand how the Bible is organized and how it works as a whole. And we see, and we know, of course, 
Here's a representation of the whole Bible. We know 66 separate individual books make up the Bible, divided into two sections called testaments. And we know that that word testament actually means a covenant or a contract. That alone is interesting. So we have two different covenants here. Um, there's 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. We know that these books were written by over 40 different people from all walks of life. We have kings, we have prophets, we have shepherds, we have fishermen, um, all writing over a span of thousands of years. And yet when they're all put together, it tells one complete story. What, what we have here is more amazing than we, we, we really can't grasp um, what that means. That is absolutely incredible. Now, with this, we know that, of course, all of these books were, of course, written by God. We know from Timothy that all Scripture is God-breathed, and yet the Holy Spirit chose a specific person to pen each and every book. And then when all the books were completed, the Holy Spirit also led in the organization of these books and how they were put in place and in order. And this is a very strong statement here, but it is my opinion that no book highlights divinely chosen authorship and divinely chosen placement than the book of Jude. Now, when I do my next class, I might say that about that book. <laughs> but for right now, I'm going to say it's Jude, and I hope to prove that to you tonight. So when we look at this, um, find, find on your chart there where you see the letter of Jude. You can see towards the very end of the entire canon of scripture, and it is right in the middle, right between the writings of John. We see John's three epistles all together, first, second, third John, and then we see the last book that John wrote, the book of Revelation. And then right in the middle of it, almost like an interruption, is this little letter about strange things. So we have to understand because the order and placement of this book is going to help us understand some of the meaning of the book and definitely the urgency we hear in Jude's voice as he writes it. Now, if we look at the three letters of John, we know he focuses on these letters, if you've ever studied these out, on the centrality of truth. John is all about truth, 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 truth. If you look up here at the charts in your notes, I just did a word study of truth, and this is only for the New Testament that I have on your chart. But the word truth is mentioned 139 times in Scripture, 46 times in the Old Testament, 95 times in the New Testament. And look what's happening there. 
What do you notice when you compare the Gospels? Matthew, Mark, Luke. How many times is the word truth mentioned? One. How many times does John mention it? Twenty-three. Twenty-three. And then all the other letters here. Obviously, some of the books don't contain the word truth at all, or they'd be on here. And then down at the bottom, you see John's three letters, eight times, five times, six times. And second and third, John are incredibly short letters. And it still mentions truth that many times. John is focused on the truth. And if you read through his work, you are going to see his plea. We are to be people of the truth. We are to hear the truth. We are to understand the truth. We are to learn the truth. We are to walk by the truth. We are to let the truth set us free. Um, truth, 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 truth over and over because he knows of what vital importance truth is. Truth is, I would say, the most important thing. If we don't have truth, we don't have anything. Literally nothing. Nothing can even be trusted without truth. And John is hammering it, hammering it, hammering it in his letters. And then he gets to Revelation and we see, why do we need to know truth? Because truth is coming back. And truth himself will be judging everything by the truth of his word. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and then here's Jude. And Jude gives a very hard message. And that message is before that happens, before the return of Jesus, there will be a great falling away from the truth. People will ignore the truth. People will blaspheme the truth. People will twist the truth. Absolutely. And this is why this book is right here. Because in case you haven't noticed, we are in a fight for the truth. <laughs> Would you agree with that? Oh, my goodness. Big time. Um, before we go on, and if you're new to class here, in your notes, you're going to see in red what is a connection. And in that connection, what I'm encouraging you to do, because I did this as I was getting ready for this, just read through the three epistles of John. And as you read, just underline in a color that it pops out to you every time the word truth is used. If you want to go further, do the same thing in the Gospel of John. You can read these three letters in no time, about 25 minutes. It'll take you longer to do the Gospel. But just get that truth, truth, truth as he's speaking and um, just really grab on to some of the verses that um, you probably know. A lot of these verses that he says are, are verses we have memorized. Chances are, if there is a verse going through your head right now that has the word truth in it, it probably comes from one of John's writings. But dig them out a little bit. Think through them this week. And just remember the gravity that John is communicating about truth and it will bring even more importance and kind of shock actually to what Jude is trying to tell us. People are going to depart from that.
So again, here's Jude's book right in the middle of this. It's a strange little letter. Did anybody underline anything in the letter as we read through it the first time that maybe you haven't seen before or something where it, it's really like, what is this even talking about? Did anybody find anything in the letter like that? Couple people, okay. Um, he, go, he goes into some places that not many other biblical writers go into, uh, but again, he is going to bring a lot of examples for us to show this falling away from the truth. And he's also going to remind us, even though he's the, he's the only biblical writer that his entire writing is on the subject of falling away from the truth. Many other biblical writers and Jesus himself warned and warned that this would happen in the last days. So what is this? This falling away from the truth or forsaking of truth, um, a turning from the truth. This idea can be summed up in one word and that word is apostasy. We're going to be dealing in the letter of Jude with the topic of apostasy. Apostasy in Greek, again, it means a falling away, a defection, or a forsaking of something. Now, this word typically makes people a little bit uncomfortable. Talking about apostasy, talking about apostates, which are people who are involved in apostasy, makes people uncomfortable. People don't want to talk about that. This is definitely a word that has been misunderstood. It's been misinterpreted. But I would say today the biggest problem is that it's not used enough. We don't talk about it enough. Apostasy is happening all the time. And yet it's kind of ignored and looked over. And, and Jude hits that hard as well that we can't be people, <laughs> we can't do that. We, we need to be people who are fighting for the truth. Um, so we're dealing with apostasy and not only is Jude tackling the issue of apostasy, what makes the letter even more shocking and sobering is he's not talking about a falling away from the truth in the world. We can expect that. The world is never going to follow the truth, never believe in the truth. They will always question the truth. He's not talking about the world. Jude is talking about apostasy in the church. He's talking about false teachers in the church spreading lies, denying or blaspheming the Lord Jesus Christ, and deceiving others, causing great deception within the church. Anybody feeling a little, oh my gosh, why did I come tonight? Um, I'm, I'm going to take questions. Um, it, it might be a little uncomfortable for us 
over these next few weeks, but I think we can handle it. And I think we need to handle it because it's reality that this is happening and it is happening more and more as the day approaches. When I say that, what day am I talking about? His return, his return. So this will grow more and more. You want a sign of the end times? Are you one of those people always looking for signs for the end times? There it is. A total turning away, a mass falling away from the truth. So, because Jude takes on a very difficult topic, the letter itself can be a little difficult. Um, it's a warning, and if we wanted to sum this letter up in one word, it would be beware. He is saying, watch out, beware. Um, his letter is probably one of the least popular, least studied, and least quoted books in the New Testament. I think we just saw that by the show of hands. This isn't a book that's studied a lot. Um, I, I won't do this, but I said, can anybody quote one verse from Jude? Probably be a little, little low. Oh, some people can. Wow, awesome. Okay, so a few people can. Um, we're going to see that Jude contains strong, harsh, severe language on a difficult topic. And in our very politically correct climate, people don't like those things anymore. People don't want to talk about hard truths. People don't want to talk about difficult things. Just kind of want to brush things under the rug and move on and hope they go away. Does apostasy just go away? No, no, absolutely not. Um, the beginning of the next page. Um, here's an application for you. And let me explain this again when, if you are new to the class, whenever you see in the notes anything in red and it's called a connection, the whole point of that is to get you as a studier of the Bible to go into other areas of the word that are connected to what we're talking about. Because we have to begin to see how this entire book is connected. Every book interlaces with the others. The best interpreter of the Bible is the Bible. If you get to something and you don't understand, guess what? Go, go find it. Go dig it. It's in there somewhere. Um, and that will help you get understanding. So these connections are just a chance for you to do some work on your own, digging in to build biblical literacy. One of the reasons for apostasy in the church today, you can probably guess, biblical illiteracy. People aren't learning the Bible. They're not studying the Bible. There's very few churches that do expositional studies anymore. I'm very thankful that we're in a church that preaches expositionally, that allows expositional teaching. That's awesome. Not, not everybody has that anymore. Um, and we have people that have been in church their entire lives that can't explain how the Bible works and how it goes together. Um, so that's the connections. Whenever in your notes you see anything that's blue, that is a chance for application. And that just means a chance for you to think about something on a 
personal level. Because we know, and we know this from James, we're not supposed to just be people who hear the word. It's awesome to be in here studying, but it can't end here. You can't leave. Oh, okay, that was good. Okay, or that wasn't good, whatever. Um, we got to be people that take what we hear and apply it and do it. We've got to be doers of the word and application just helps us to think, what am I supposed to, what am I supposed to do with this? How can I think about how this is even applying to me and my life? We can never, and you've, if you've been in a class of mine before, you know this, we can never say the words when we're reading the Bible. What does that mean to you? don't get to decide what this means. The author has a purpose in every word he wrote. That's not our decision. What does it mean? We study to learn what it means, but our application might be different. It might affect us differently. Uh, a passage or a scripture might call you to do one thing in your life and might call me to do something else. It might expose something in your life and expose something differently in mine. That's very different from meaning. But we have to be women who apply what we're learning as well. So that's what the blue is throughout your notes. Those are your chances for application. So this week, just think through, I've put a few in here, but what are some messages we hear today concerning truth that aren't true. Things like, there's no such thing as absolute truth. Anybody heard that? Mm -hmm. What's true for you isn't necessarily true for me. You hear that one? It's impossible. Truth is truth. <laughs> truth affects everyone. Um, we don't get to decide what truth is. Um, have you ever heard this one? What was true in Bible times isn't true for us today. Oh, we've grown. We've evolved. We know more now than they did then. Well, that's probably not even true. Um, but these are lies that are being told about the truth. So kind of have your ears perked up as you go through you go through the week as you're hearing conversations as you're watching television or whatever you do and see what lies do you hear that are being spread about the truth I think you'll hear a lot um, now if we remember in our teaching of the seven letters to the churches from Revelation um, we know that those seven letters if you remember are letters from Jesus himself to the church that he loves. And in those letters, he would say, um, he would try to give something encouraging that the truth was doing, that the church was doing, but he would also give a warning of where they were going astray. And why this is important in this letter and I did not put this um, in your notes, but it's actually in the pocket of your notes. And some of the things that are in the pockets 
are things we'll kind of be referring to throughout the class, so just keep them in your pockets. But if you remember the crazy, wonderful, interesting things about this letter or about these seven letters aren't just what Jesus said, but again, we learned that the intentional order of these letters lay out church history from the birth of the church, which is the day of Pentecost, to what is the end of the church age, which I believe, you know, is the rapture. So the entire church age is laid out ahead of time in these seven letters. And we know it started with the first century, the day of Pentecost, taking us all the way up to about A.D. 100, because that was the death of the last Apostle John. So that entire part of church history is called the apostolic age. And even in the first century, Jesus had a warning for them. We're not even out of the first century. And he said, you've lost your first love. Oh, my gosh. You've lost your first love. Um, Smyrna, he had nothing negative to say. Beautiful letter. Pergamum. You remember Pergamum? Oh, my, you are compromising. You are allowing compromise into the church. You're compromising on the truth, for one thing, which leads to the next point in church history, which is Thyatira. And this can be summed up. It's called the corrupt church. Compromise will always lead to corruption. Compromise might see, seem very small at first but it will take you where you don't want to go. And it has taken the church where it should not be, in a place of corruption. To Sardis, oh my goodness, he called Sardis dead. Don't even have life anymore. Philadelphia, nothing bad to say. If you need some encouragement, oh, read Smyrna and Philadelphia. If you need a little wake up, read the others. Um, but when you get to the seventh letter, which is the church of Laodicea, and this is on your notes, what, what is the title of that church? What is that known as? I'm so sorry. The apostate church. The apostate church. And if you remember in that letter, Jesus is outside of the church. He's not even in it. He's knocking on the door. Hey, come on out. <laughs> come on out and I'll, I'll be with you. Not even inside. It's a picture of apostasy. And we see Michael doesn't call me that much. Of course, he calls me twice now. So, um, no, I shouldn't say that. He does call me a lot. Um, so we are at a time, as church history has gone on, we see deception creeping in very early in the church, and it grows worse and worse and worse. And what, what picture takes us to the end of the church age? The church of apostasy. It's the last letter. 
So whenever that end is, and we don't know, could be tonight, could be 100 years from now. But this is kind of the condition that takes us to the end. Does that mean every church is an apostate church? Of course not. Thank God there's churches out there doing what they're supposed to be doing, saying what they're supposed to be saying, preaching and teaching what is supposed to be preached and taught. And because of that, the effort of evangelism is moving on. And we can't forget that in a letter that seems a little bit dreary. Um, is Michael now calling you? <laughs> oh my gosh, it is my mom, so it could be. Wow. This is going to be fun on the recording, you all. Um, so we can't lose sight of the wonderful things that are happening in the church as we study this letter, because there are wonderful things happening. But we can't be ignorant and we can't close our eyes to things that shouldn't be happening and just, like I said, hope that it goes away. Okay. So why study the letter of Jude now? Well, um, they were dealing with apostasy in the first century when he wrote this letter. Um, mainly, they were dealing with something called Gnosticism in the first century. And Gnosticism, if you remember that um, word Gnostic comes from knowledge. It's this idea of this higher knowledge that is actually greater than Scripture. That's what that is. And it's only given to some. So it's this secret knowledge higher than Scripture itself. And that was a rampant belief in the, belief in the first century. So Jude, in his writing, he was dealing with this type of apostasy. He probably had no, obviously, he had no clue what was coming. And when we look around today, there's all sorts of things that are going on, all sorts of things that are being preached and taught that do not follow the word of God. And again, I would say this, this is a time we need to be studying this book. I think it's fascinating in the letter, and we'll really get into this next week, but Jude didn't want to write this letter. <laughs> this was not the letter he wanted to write. He tells us what he wanted to write. He wanted to write a letter about our common salvation. Oh, how awesome. How awesome. We're saved by grace through faith and all the wonderful things that we have as believers. That's what he wanted to do. But then he said, I found it needful. I found it needful to write on something else. He was compelled to write on something else instead. And what he chose to write about was this warning. Um, if we look at your church history timeline, and this is also in your binder there, and this is something keep in the front pocket because this is a piece that we'll be going through several times at different points during the class. Now, when we see this, and we're not going to dig into everything today, but I want you to know in general, 
This is an outline, and the majority of it I just took right out of Haley's Bible Handbook because it does an incredible job with Roman emperors. Who was emperor when and who brought in persecution? So um, that, that's how I started this. After I did that, I went back later, and then I put in every time we have a book of the Bible written. So those are all highlighted for you. I have, I went back and I put in Paul's missionary journeys and his conversions and things that are important in understanding the history of the church and how we got to where we are. So this is just the beginning here. But when we look at our timeline and we see that um, this timeline begins at 46 B.C., because I wanted it to start right when Christ was born. It's very important for us to have some understanding of Roman history because God chose to send his son to the earth during the heyday of the Roman Empire. And when he returns, it will be under what Revelation calls the new Roman Empire. So Roman history is pretty important. Pretty important. So we see when Christ was born, we see on here, look at sometime between 12 and 37, we have the day of Pentecost, the birth of the church. Birth of the church. Then as time goes on, um, look and see, find on your timeline, what is the first book that Paul wrote? Galatians. The first book Paul wrote is Galatians, and you can see that was in AD 49. And if you open up for this, I want you to actually open your books to open your Bibles to Galatians. I want you to see something. And this should be familiar to you because we've done a study on Galatians. Um, in church. So the very first letter that Paul writes, and look at chapter 1, verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Look at the year of that letter, you all. 46, 46 AD, and people are turning from the true gospel. And then if you skip to chapter 3, um, chapter 3, verse 1, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? That's an important word in there, who. Someone is spreading lies, causing deception. Someone is bewitching the Galatian church. Look at your timeline again. Um, and you'll see in Paul's third missionary journey, what was the year of his third missionary journey? 
Yes, sometime between 52 and 53. So Paul goes to, on this journey, he goes to Ephesus. He spends years in Ephesus, a ch good chunk of time in Ephesus teaching. The Bible tells us he's teaching every single day. Um, we know he had to flee Ephesus because of rioting and all sorts of things that we read about in Acts. But after he leaves Ephesus, he can't go back because it's too dangerous. But he loves the people of Ephesus. So he calls the elders of the church to meet him somewhere else. And he, wa he wants to tell them goodbye. He wants to see him again. But when they're together, he also gives them a warning. And that's what I want you to see. Look at Acts 20, 28 through 30. This is Paul's words to the Ephesian elders. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, Fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. So again, we see very early in the church, not out of the first century, and Paul and others warning about what is going to happen, what is going to take place. People among what should be the brethren, but they're not. They're fierce wolves in with the sheep. And Paul is saying, watch over your sheep, protect your sheep, watch out for these people because this is what's gonna happen. Um, if we looked at um, the beginning of the church age and the end of the church age, it's been coined this way, and I think this is very appropriate. The beginning of the church, we have the Acts of the Apostles. The end of the church age, we have the Acts of the Apostates. And one of the early Acts of the Apostles that we just saw in Paul was to warn of apostasy. So let's take a minute and think about the genre of Jude's writing. We know that his writing is in the form of a letter. In fact, the majority, I'll go back to this, the majority of New Testament writings are in letter form, also called epistles. So if we look at our chart up here, everything in blue, these are all written as letters. And if we understand, um, it's easy to understand actually why that is when we think about the history of the church. Remember, the church is just getting started. When they, whenever you hear in the New Testament uh, talking about scripture, they're talking about the Old Testament. That's what they had. That's what Paul had. They had the Old Testament. But then what starts happening is the apostles and the disciples, the people who had actually been with Jesus, 
had been taught by Jesus, they start writing down. We have the gospel writers, and they, of course, wrote about the time that Jesus was on the earth. That was their job. And then we have all these other, um, all these other people who wrote letters, again, about the teachings of Jesus um, so that the church could understand both doctrine of the gospel that they're professing and also instruction of how to live it out. And these were actual letters. They wrote them. They sent them out to different churches. They circulated these letters. I find that really fascinating today because sometimes when I read some of these letters, I'm like, would that even get passed around today? Would these churches, would some churches even read these letters if it was sent to them? There, there's a lot in these letters, but this, this is why the majority of the New Testament is in this form, letter form, because it was meant to circulate among the churches. So he writes in the form of a letter. And what I would say is that we need to look at the letters in the Bible just like we would any letter when we get a letter. What do we look for when we get something in the mail? Well, we look for who wrote the letter. Of course, we look at the envelope to see who it's coming from so we know who the author is. We look for the date um, to see when something was written. We know in this book of Jude, because of its similarities to the writings of Peter, most people think those two books were written very close together. They put Peter's writings first because where Peter in his work, he is warning that apostates are coming. Jude says they're here. So that's why most people think the writings of Peter comes first. But there's great similarity sometimes word for word, almost quotes between those two letters. So when we get a letter, we also obviously look for the intended recipient. The initial audience of Jude's letter was, of course, the first century church. That was the time that he was writing. He meant for this letter to be circulated. This was most likely, he probably saw his audience as Jewish converts because when we'll see in his writing that he feels that his audience is pretty comfortable with a lot of accounts from the Old Testament. Things that when we read it today, we might be like, what is that story of Balaam? Um, what does it mean when he talks about Enoch? Um, what happened? What happened with Korah? What is this Korah's rebellion? Um, he, he doesn't give any details on this. Why? Because he thinks his audience knows them. He thinks they're familiar with them. So most likely they're Jewish converts. Um, also, he mentions other writings that first century Jewish people would probably be aware of. The book of Enoch and the Assumption of Moses. We're going to talk about those when we get there. They are not scripture, absolutely not scripture, but they were writings that people of the first century would know, be familiar with, and were probably reading. So that, 
that's what that means there. Um, next in a letter, um, as you get into the body of a letter, that's when you see the purpose. That's when you discover the reason that the writer wrote it. And we know with Jude, the whole purpose for his letter is to call for the church to aggressively defend the truth. That there's an infiltration of false teachers that people need to wake up about, see, and do something about. Again, this letter is a warning. Now Jude understood, and we've talked about this briefly, that the most dangerous enemy is the enemy within. And we know that in every area, you all, when there's a war going on, the most dangerous enemy is one that infiltrates the other side. It's no different than with the church. The most dangerous enemy to the church is one from the inside. Um, the most effective attacks against the truth come from those who are associated with the truth. Those who claim to have it, but they don't. And what I would say to that, just so, so you kind of get this, if you've ever seen like those, um, what do you call them, like interviews on the street, when somebody goes out, hey, what do you think of this? And people give their off-the-cuff answers. Like if I'm ever watching one of those and... Um, well, what do you think about truth? And then somebody says, oh, there's no such thing as absolute truth. I would just click. Nothing that person has to say is probably going to be something I need to hear. Okay? Now, if I go to a bookstore, a Christian bookstore, and I get a book that is Christian or has the name or is associated as a Christian piece of writing as I'm reading that because I assume it's going to be truthful, it can be harder for me to discern when something's not truthful. That's why we have to be so careful. Ladies, not everything that is labeled Christian is Christian. Not every Christian book has Christian doctrine. Not every Christian song has lyrics that are doctrinally sound. Not every person on a Christian podcast or whatever is speaking truth. But because they're associated with truth, because they claim to be people of truth, it can be much more deceptive than other books that don't claim to be or other podcasts that don't claim to be Christian. So this letter, if anything, it's really a call for discernment. We've got to be discerning. So we're going to hear an urgency um, in Jude's voice as we read it. Um, the church that he loves, the church that Christ died for, is under attack. 
Um, people in the congregations are being deceived, and many within the church don't even realize that it's happening. So Jude is making a call here for us to get it. So that is Jude the book, an introduction to his writing. Now we're going to look a few minutes at Jude the person. So same word, Jude. Um, this is an incredibly important name biblically. In Hebrew, the word Jude is Yehuda. This is the same name as Judah, who was the fourth son of Jacob. Judah, we know, is the name of the southern kingdom after the um, nation was divided into Israel and Judah. Judah is also the root from which we get the word Jew. So a very important name, a very important word. In Greek, this is so interesting, in Greek the word Jude is Iotis. It means he shall be praised, but it is the same name as Judas. Ow. How interesting that the greatest apostate to date and the writer of the book on apostasy share the same name. So that's his name. Finally getting past the first word. Um, Rose has been asking me for a couple weeks, how are you going to get 12 weeks out of this? That's how. We've only done one word. We've only done one word so far. Okay, but we're moving on. So Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. So Jude gives us two descriptors of who he is in his introduction. First, he says a servant. This word in Greek is doulos. It means a bond slave, a bond servant, one who gives himself up to another's will, one devoted to another to the disregard of their own self and their own interest. This word denotes permanence in contrast to a debt slave, which would have been temporary servitude. And this is what Jude is calling himself here, a bond slave to Christ. Someone who's going to put his will, his intention before his own. Um, this is the same word we saw in the opening of Revelation where it said the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants, doulos, things which must shortly come to pass. This idea is critical to understand in Scripture. Um, when we bow our knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, we become his bond servant. You all, that's the same word as slave. That is an uncomfortable word, but that's what it is. A person who does the master's will, not their own. And this is what Jude is calling himself. And we're going to see 
evidence of that next week when we get to verse 3. Because again, Jude wanted to do something else. He probably wanted to write maybe a little easier letter. But the Holy Spirit um, inspired him to write this one, and he did. He laid down his own will and his desire and did what he was told to do. That, that's the essence of a bondservant there. That's the essence of a doulos. Um, so a point of application here to think about this week. Um, is this true for us? If we claim to be followers, followers of Christ, which I'm assuming we all do, could we call ourselves a servant of Christ? Could you call yourself a slave to Christ? That's tough. Means we lay down our will to do his. And that's what the call is. That's what the call is. We get amazing benefits from it. We can talk about those all day. But, but that's the initial call there. That, that's big. It's costly to become a servant of Christ because that's what you're giving up, your own life, your own will, your only right, your rights to things, your rights even to your own opinions. Guess what your opinion should be matching up with? The word of God. If they're not, you probably need to give them up. That, that's, that's the depth of this word. And that's how Jude introduces himself. He is a doulos of Christ. Um, then he calls himself a brother of James. Now we know... If Jude is a brother of James, then he's actually a half-brother of Jesus. So I have for you in your notes, there is a, let's see if I can find it. A little family tree there, and you can see Joseph and Mary, of course, Jesus, and then we see the half-brothers of Jesus, James, Joseph, Simon, and Jude. We also know from other places in Scripture that he has sisters. They're not named in the Bible, but they are named in other historic works. So we have these up here. But Jude, being a brother of James, makes him a half-brother to Jesus himself. Now, in your connection there, this week you can go through and read a lot of passages, a lot of scriptures where you're going to see those connections are made clear of who James is and how we can prove so-and-so is a brother to who and who really is this family because we don't learn it from Jude. Jude doesn't even mention it. So, so James, James and Jude were two of the four half-brothers of Jesus Jesus's half-brothers actually have four of the most common names of the time, the most common Jewish names. Scripturally, we know James was the oldest, and then we have 
Joseph, but because the writings of Mark and Matthew differ in the order, one puts Simon before Jude, one puts Jude before Simon, we don't really know who's the third and who is the youngest of the brothers. So that is written that way, but we're not sure about those two. Again, we know he has sisters because it says that um, in the word, but we get the names from other historical writings. So why is this important? Um, James and Jude would have been two people who knew Jesus the most, two people who were the most intimate with Jesus himself, yet we also know from Scripture they did not believe Jesus was who he said he was. In fact, most of his family thought he was crazy. And we see that, and there's some connections in there for you to read through this week. They didn't believe him. But how awesome. By the end, after the resurrection, we see them in the upper room with the congregation of believers. They got saved. <laughs> James and Jude both got saved. They both realized Jesus, their brother, their earthly brother, really was the Messiah, the Christ, the Lord. Oh, my gosh. Can you even imagine what that day would have been like when those eyes were opened? Oh, my gosh. My brother, who was all doing this? Wow. Um, but they did believe. Um, another point of application here, and this is so important, and this is one that I've been thinking about for the last couple years now. Ladies, it's more important how we finish than how we begin. Quit worrying about how you begin and your past. Finish strong. James and Jude finished strong. They became believers, and not only that, God used them to write two of the books in the Bible you're holding. They didn't even believe him. They were here walking with him, and they still get to write two books. Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. We need to finish well. We need to finish strong. Think about things in your life that you're implementing now that will help you be stronger next year. So think about the trajectory of your life. Are you stronger today than you were at this time last year? If not, change something. Don't beat yourself up. Just change it. Change it. Start today. Go on. Finish strong. Let's, let's all do that. Um, so why does Jude introduce himself using only the name of James and not his other brothers? Well, really, that would be because James would have been well known to Jude's audience. We learn a lot about James in the Bible, and I've got a connection for you there. Read through passages that share his life. We know that he was the oldest half-brother of Jesus. He was a pillar in the church. He was a central figure in the Ju Jerusalem um, council. He went on to write the book of James. Later, he was martyred. But that name would have been known. It would have been recognized by Jude's audience. So most likely, that's why he put only his name here. If we look at the two books that these brothers wrote, I found this interesting. Um, James 
was written in A.D. 44, and Jude was written in A.D. 68. James was the very first New Testament book written. Before the Gospels were written, before any of the other letters were written, James wrote his letter. Jude, even though it wasn't the last letter actually written, it was the last letter put in the organized scripture. So we have these two brothers almost bookending the whole section of epistles in the New Testament. I think that's amazing. And there's a great contrast here between their writings where James focuses on good works as evidence of saving faith. Jude focuses on evil works as evidence of apostasy. So big contradiction in their writings, or big contrast, I should say, not contradiction. Um, so that's interesting as well, and you can see the time of their writing also on your timeline. So knowing this, this makes his introduction even more interesting. Jude, a servant of the Lord and brother of James. Well, the first thing we can see here is Jude shows humility. This would be the absolute greatest opportunity for a name drop. Jude, the brother of Jesus. Yet he avoids all familiarity. We don't even know he is the brother of Jesus anywhere in his letter. He never mentions it. In fact, neither does James. The only way we know is through other people's writing elsewhere in the scripture. It's been said you learn more about a person by how they talk about themselves. Ooh. And they never even mention that family connection there to Jesus. Secondly, what's interesting in this introduction is that he doesn't presume on this relationship as the most important part of his relationship to Jesus. Think about that. Jude, being a brother of Jesus, did not guarantee his salvation. And your family connections don't guarantee yours either. You might have grown up in a great family. I was blessed to grow up in a Christian home with Christian parents who got me in church, but that didn't save me. It wouldn't save me. We all have to come to a personal knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We all need to have that moment of repentance and surrender, and that's what you did later in life, but he did it. And he knows, <laughs> oh my, him being a brother didn't really mean anything. And Jesus clears that up himself in, where do I have that? In Matthew 3, 31 through 35. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about, 
all those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Oh my gosh, let that sink in. We might not have been the brother or sister of Jesus walking on this earth, but we can be even closer. We can have a better relationship than the relationship of blood. And how do we get there? Exactly what he said. Whoever does the will of God. So another application there for you to think through. I'm going to start talking a little bit quicker. Um, lastly, tonight we're going to look at Jude's audience. And this is who this letter is to. To those who are called beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. This tells us to whom Jude was writing, and these three words are crucial. They are very important. First off, the called. This is the Greek word um, kaleo or kletos, and it means divinely selected and appointed, invited to a eternal salvation in the kingdom of God through Christ. What a word. And look at, I'm not going to read all of these, read these over on your own this week, but just look at Romans 1.1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Did Paul call himself? Did he bow his knee willingly? He got knocked off a horse. <laughs> he, he, he was called. He was chosen. He was like, oh, you're my man. You're it. Come on. He was called. That, that, read that again. Read that several times this week. Invited to obtain eternal salvation in the kingdom of God through Christ. Wow. The Greek word, for church is ecclesia, which we know is the called out ones. That's pretty amazing too. So why doesn't he just address his letter to the church? Well, this is, this is what I believe. And, and for this part, I'm going to say this is strictly my opinion, so take it or leave it. But this is why I think he specifically uses the word called here. Because there is a difference between the visible church and the true church. We have a visible church, which means we go around and we can see them on all the corners, these buildings where people come in and gather. That, that's what is the visible church. We have the true church, which is the body of Christ, true followers, people that are repentant, redeemed, doing what Christ says, following the will of God. And the reason we have to make that differentiation here is because um, we have to have this understanding. And again, nobody likes to think about this. Can there be people sitting in the visible church that aren't a part of the body of Christ? Of course. Of course, churches can be full of them, actually. 
Some of those people can be behind a pulpit, behind a podium. You have to be careful. Just because someone is in the visible church does not mean they're a part of the true church, the body of Christ. But the called ones are. That's what it means. They've been called out. They've been invited in. That's who they are. And this is who Jude is writing this letter to because the entire letter is about people who are in the church that shouldn't be saying things and causing deception within the, um, within the church. The second word here is beloved. This is agapeo. It means dearly loved. Um, Jude uses this word four times in the short letter. He's going to be telling us some difficult things. So he starts by telling us and reminding us that we're loved. I don't know about you, but whenever I have to hear something hard from something, from somebody that I love, man, I like to hear that I'm loved first. I like to be reminded, okay, I love you, but here's the deal. So that's what he's doing here. And then this word kept. And we are going to be dealing with this word towards the end of class. We're going to really dig deep into this word. But what I want you to know tonight is in Greek, this word means guarded, attended to carefully, and taken care of. This is the only letter in the entire New Testament in which that word kept is used in the greeting or the salutation, the only one. And look at the definition. This is such a common word. Oh, I keep this. Will you keep this for me? Keep, keep, keep. We, we don't even realize the spiritual significance of this word. And if we look into some other places in the Bible where it's used, the meaning really comes to light. Listen to some of these. John 8, 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And again, the definition, you, you will guard, you will attend to that carefully, you'll take care of it. 1 Thessalonians 5.23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. First Timothy 5.22 Do not be hasty in the laying of hands nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. It means guard yourself. Protect that purity. James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. 1 John 2.3, and by this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. Oh, that is a... That is a very important, powerful word. 
there are things that we're being told here that we are to keep. We are to guard. We are to attend to carefully. But in Jude's use here, that's what he's calling us. We are the kept. Think about that. Jesus himself attending to us, guarding, protecting us. Oh, that, that is incredible. That is absolutely incredible. We don't keep ourselves, ladies. Thank God. Thank God. He keeps us. And this is who he is writing this letter to. Um, I do believe we are going to find this as an ultimate comfort in this letter, which is all about falling away. Because you might even ask yourself sometimes, could this be me? Could I fall away? Well, you tell me. Can you be kept in his hand and fall away at the same time? I don't believe so. I don't believe so. Well, again, we are really going to hit this at the end of the letter because Jude, in his wonderful writing and his incredible organization, and if you break this letter down into... Come on, click into outline form. You are going to see Jude has a very interesting organization here. And he starts the letter and he ends the letter with assurance for the believer. He's telling the called, the kept, and the beloved, okay, okay, I've got some hard things to say, but it's not about you. You might have something to do, but I'm not talking to you here. You're not, you're not this. You are the saved. You are the called. You are the kept. You are the redeemed. And he both begins and ends his letter. And as we go through the remainder of the letter, and I'll let you do this on your own this week, and we'll hit it a little more next week. This letter is amazing. It is organized where almost every single thing Jude does he begins and then he ends. And then the next thing he goes to, the believer and the faith. And then he ends with that. Then he talks about apostasy and apostates and he describes them. And then he does that again at the end. Then he gives examples. And then an antitype. And then examples again. And then an antitype. And he repeats it and he is sandwiching Everything he is saying, so we get it at the beginning and we get it at the end. It's a really neat book to outline. So as you read through it, and I encourage you all to read through this letter, read it every day. It's short. It takes six minutes. I've timed it many times. It takes six minutes to read it. So read it every day while we're doing this class. We're going to read it in here together, and we're really going to believe that God is going to show us what he wants to show us and what we need to hear in this letter. With that, let me pray. Father God, we come to you in Jesus' name. And again, Lord, we are so thankful for this night and this opportunity. Lord, we thank you for this letter. We thank you for Jude who wrote it. 
He didn't even want to, and he did, and we have it today because of his obedience. And it's even more timely for us than probably to whom he wrote it for in the first place. God, speak to us through your word. Lord, show us, each of us, show us each what it means. And then also, Lord, show us how each of us are to apply it, what we're supposed to do with it, how it's supposed to change something in us or in our life as we learn it. Father, again, I lift up these women. I thank you for their just obedience, um, their desire to come and study, the sacrifice, again, that is made to come and study. Lord, just bless them back for that. Get them home safely, Lord, and return us all next week so we can learn more from your word. In the precious and powerful name of Jesus, the one who called us, the one who loves us, and thank you, Lord, the one who keeps us. In Jesus' name, amen.